Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally. I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it and you're using illegal drugs, alcohol, or other bad influences to try and escape the pain, you're not alone. Please stop and do me a favor. Call 800-831-1560. They'll show you a way out of the darkness. That's 800-831-1560. 800-831-1560. Welcome to another Weekend Archive episode of Weird Darkness. This episode was originally aired February 17, 2018. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, Weirdos. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not already done so, so you don't miss future episodes. Coming up in this episode… A woman keeps seeing her deceased father-in-law out of the corner of her eye. The sad tale of Mary Mallon, it still haunts us today. You may know her better as Typhoid Mary. And John George Haig took the plunge into murder when he knocked out his old boss and dumped the body into acid, then set out to kill again. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Throughout my life, I have had very vivid dreams which on many occasions have actually become reality. I also tend to get flash images of people and events. When I see people for whatever reason, they seem to appear in the corner of my left eye. I know that sounds crazy, I'm not talking about seeing deceased people only. Approximately a year ago, I had a very vivid dream about Pop, my deceased father-in-law. All his grandchildren called him Pop. In fact, our grandchildren also call my husband Pop. Well, the dream that I had about Pop was that he was trying to get me to board a plane, which I did not want to do. I won't go into specifics about that as this account is not about a dream. In fact, after I churned the dream around in my mind, it turned out to be figurative and he was quite right in trying to get me to board the plane which in my dream I did not do but in reality actually did do. Excellent advice from Pop. After this dream, I kept seeing Pop in my left eye. I would love to know whether other members have experienced this. He was always wearing a white and blue checked shirt, which he often wore in life. I tried talking to him out loud in my mind but got no reaction whatsoever. All he did was appear in my mind or my eye. Eventually, I had this brainstorm. He was trying to communicate with his son, my husband, but could not do so. If the ghost were to hit Brian over the head with a cricket bat, he wouldn't acknowledge it. So in my mind, Pop was using me to get his son to communicate with him. I dutifully told Brian to sit quietly on his own 
and to talk to his father. I told him what he said didn't matter, just please try to communicate because your father is driving me nuts. He did so, probably just to get me out of his hair, but said he didn't feel a thing. He did not feel the presence of his father at all. Fast forward about 10 days or maybe a couple of weeks, my son had alarming news regarding his financial situation. He's happily married and has two children, a daughter and a son. Craig is a highly qualified electronic engineer and was earning a very, very good income. Because of the problems with the mines, which were and still are the main source of income in his company, he had to take a 30% decrease in his salary. This would affect anybody pretty badly. You live according to your income, and although he isn't a spendthrift, he and his family had to lower their lifestyle very drastically. Now, the following event was witnessed by his wife and a very good friend of his. One Saturday afternoon, he had been mowing his lawn when his friend arrived at his house with a few beers. At this stage, Craig was still very low, wondering how he was going to cope with private schooling for his kids, and so on. Craig had noticed a young dove, which seemed to hop from tree to tree while he was mowing the lawn. When he and his friend sat down in the garden to enjoy a beer, this dove perched itself on his shoulder. His friend actually took a few pics of it on his cell phone. This dove sat on his shoulder, according to Craig, his wife, and his friend, for at least half an hour before Craig took it off his shoulder and put it on the branch of a tree. It then flew off. He and I discussed this incident, and we both agreed that the dove was the spirit of Pop. I have never again experienced the presence of Pop. Just to mention, Craig was very close to him, and he was very proud of this specific grandchild for a number of reasons – achievements under adversity and so on. I would really love to know what other people think of this. To me, it was just too much to be a coincidence. Red wine, ice cream, a warm bath. These are wonderful ways to unwind after a long day at work. But as we've seen time and again, even the most soothing of activities can be twisted into terror by a madman's dark imagination. Such is the grisly case of John George Haig, a serial killer from England who used bubble baths of acid to dispose of his victims. Born in 1909 to an ultra-religious Plymouth Brethren family, John George Haig was raised in Yorkshire, England. His upbringing was strict, to say the least. His father reportedly constructed a 10-foot fence around their yard as a means of blocking out the neighbors. With no playmates, young John grew up alone. At night, he was haunted by nightmares. The first signs of trouble appeared in his early 20s. After a series of odd office jobs, John was fired on the suspicion that he had stolen company money. His life took a brief turn for the better in 1934 when he married a woman named Betty Hamer, but the marriage fell apart. Soon after, John landed himself in jail for fraud. While behind bars, Betty gave birth to a baby girl whom she put up for adoption. 
John's conservative parents refused to accept the decision and forever shunned their son from the family. Alone, John moved south to London where he picked up work as a chauffeur for a wealthy businessman named William McSwan in 1936. Yet his criminal ways bubbled back up. For the next seven years, John was in and out of jail for various crimes. It was during this time that he dreamed up the perfect murder. How can one kill and then truly get rid of the body? Sulfuric acid, of course. To test his plan, John caught mice and submerged their helpless bodies in acid. There he saw it. The critters were gone within 30 minutes. In 1943, John was freshly released from prison and reconnected with his old boss, William McSwan. William invited the freed convict to dinner at his parents' home in celebration. Shortly thereafter, William disappeared. John told William's parents that the man had gone into hiding to avoid being drafted into World War II, but the truth was far grislier. John had lured William into his basement, where he cracked him on the head, then dumped him into a 40-gallon barrel of sulfuric acid. Within a couple of days, William went from grown man to goop. Afterward, John moved into William's estate, claiming the businessman had asked him to do so. But with World War II drawing to a close, William's parents wondered why their son remained in hiding. They soon voiced their suspicions to John. He knew of one way to quiet the fussy people. Give them an acid bath. With the entire McSwan family now out of the picture, John began cashing William's pension checks. He sold off their belongings for around 8,000 pounds, 300,000 in today's pounds. With money in hand, the killer moved into the Onslow Court Hotel in London's posh Kensington district. Eventually, however, the funds ran out, especially after John gambled much of it away. While on the hunt for more cash, the killer spotted a promising real estate ad in the local paper. He traveled to the home of Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife, Rose. Pretending to be an interested buyer, John soon struck up a relationship with the affluent couple. In February of 1948, John convinced his newfound friends to take a drive into the country and visit his new workshop in West Sussex. Upon arrival, John gunned down the Hendersons and dumped their bodies in the baths. He then collected their belongings and pawned it off for money. Yes, the acid bath murderer had cooked up quite the chilling racket. Lure wealthy acquaintances out to his workshop of horrors, send them to the vats, then sell off their possessions for cold, hard cash. John's next and final victim was Olive Durand Deacon, a wealthy widow living at the Onslow Court Hotel. Of all possible things, Miss Durand Deacon wanted to meet with John to discuss a brilliant new idea – artificial fingernails. John happily invited her to his West Sussex workshop where he shot her dead and submerged her body in acid. This time, however, the acid bath murderer failed to cover his tracks. Detectives soon connected the missing woman to John and began looking into his lengthy record of prior arrests. When authorities searched his West Sussex workshop, they found evidence of Mrs. Durand Deacon 
plus some papers referring to his earlier victims. As for the body-erasing acid baths, the plan was not as foolproof as John thought. The pathologist identified three gallstones and a piece of denture among the remaining sludge, objects that could withstand a slathering of sulfuric acid. Authorities arrested John and charged him with murder. He soon confessed to the killings. The man pled insanity, claiming he had been driven mad by a childhood nightmare that returned to him as an adult. I saw before me a forest of crucifixes which gradually turned into trees, John recounted of the dream. At first there appeared to be dew or rain dripping from the branches, but as I approached I realized it was blood, the whole forest began to writhe and the trees, dark and erect, to ooze blood. A man went from each tree catching the blood. When the cup was full, he approached me. Drink, he said, but I was unable to move. The courtroom had little interest in John's strange vision. A guilty verdict was handed down on all counts. In August 1949, John George Haig was put to death by one of England's longest-serving executioners, Albert Pierpont. If you were unfortunate enough to not receive a MyPillow as a gift this year, well, why not gift yourself? Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows and two Go Anywhere pillows for one low price. And free shipping is still available. You can check it out right now. Just go to MyPillow.com and then click on the four-pack special. Use the promo code WEIRD and you get free shipping, even now after the holidays. That's MyPillow.com. Click on the four-pack special and enter the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you in part by the audiobook 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons by Daniel C. Okapara. Demons, what are they? How do they operate? And how does one cast them out? Many years ago, famous Christian apologist C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. It's been decades since he said that. The church is still battling with these equal and opposite extremes. We have people who believe that demons and deliverance teachings and practices are a wish-wash emotional razzmatazz used to fleece people into an undue advantage. They believe that once we become new creatures, those old things are passed away, that demons have no more power over the believer's life, that all we need to do daily is to renew our minds and live wholly to please the Lord. On the other hand, there are those who practically live, talk, and smell demons. It's all about demons and nothing else. They believe that all of their problems in life are from demons. They spend hours binding and casting demons, running to and fro for one deliverance or the other. This book provides the right balance needed to deal with demons, overcome them, and live a victorious life. 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons 
by Daniel C. Okpara, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample or purchase the title on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. The year 1906 marked a turning point in American medicine. It was the year when the new science of bacteriology gained public attention when it was used in the investigation of a typhoid outbreak in New York City. The outbreak was a mysterious one to the doctors at the time because it led the authorities to a healthy woman who was unknowingly spreading the disease. As these same authorities struggled to convince her that she was infecting the people she worked for, they eventually quarantined her for 26 years, starting on March 27, 1915. The story of Typhoid Mary has had a lingering effect on American history. Her name alone has become a metaphor for fear of contamination from contagious disease, and her plight now symbolizes the need to balance the civil liberties of disease-carrying individuals when the population at large is at risk. Her story has had other lingering effects as well, namely on the place of her confinement, a now-abandoned hospital on New York's North Brother Island is one of the ghosts that still walks the hallways of the hospital that of Typhoid Mary? Perhaps, for hers was a strange history. The tale of Typhoid Mary began in the summer of 1906 when New York banker Charles Henry Warren rented a summer home for his family in Oyster Bay, Long Island. The house was rented from George Thompson and a large staff was hired, including an Irish immigrant named Mary Mallon, who was employed as a cook. On August 27th, one of the Warrens' daughters became ill with typhoid fever. Soon after, Mrs. Warren and two maids also became stricken with these same symptoms of high fever, diarrhea, vomiting, chills, and a rash. Days later, another daughter became sick, as did the Warrens' gardener, in all, six of the eleven people in the household came down with typhoid. Since the most common way that typhoid was spread was through food and water sources, the owners of the house feared that they would not be able to rent the property again without first discovering the source of the outbreak. The Thompsons first hired investigators to look into the situation, but they were unsuccessful in finding the cause. Then they hired George Soper, a civil engineer who had experience with typhoid fever outbreaks. It was Soper who believed that the recently hired cook, Mary Mallon, was the cause of the sickness. Mallon left the Warrens about three weeks after the outbreak and went to work for another wealthy family. Soper began researching her employment history, looking for clues. Mary Mallon had been born on September 23, 1869, in Cookstown, County Tyrone, Ireland, According to what she told friends, Mary came to America at the age of 15. Like many Irish immigrant women, she found work as a domestic servant. She became a cook, which paid better than most domestic service positions. Soper traced Mary's employment history back to 1900 and found that typhoid outbreaks had followed her from job to job. From 1900 to 1907, Soper found that Mary had worked at seven jobs in which 22 people had become ill, including one young girl 
who died from typhoid shortly after Mary came to work for her family. Soper was convinced that this was not a coincidence, and yet he needed stool and blood samples from Mary to prove that she was a carrier. The idea that someone could be healthy and still carry a disease and spread it to others was a concept that had been announced by Robert Cook but had not been proven yet in any individual. Mary, Soper knew, might be the first such person discovered by science. In March 1907, Soper found Mary working as a cook in the home of Walter Bowen and his family. Soper needed samples from Mary and he confronted her at her place of work. She was shocked as anyone would have been. As far as she knew, she was quite healthy and now she was being approached by a stranger who not only told her that she was spreading some sort of disease that was killing people but wanted her to give samples of her blood and her feces. Mary not only refused, she became quite angry. Soper later wrote, I had my first talk with Mary in the kitchen of this house. I was as diplomatic as possible, but I had to say I suspected her of making people sick and that I wanted specimens of her urine, feces, and blood. It did not take Mary long to react to this suggestion. She seized a carving fork and advanced in my direction. I passed rapidly down the long, narrow hall through the tall iron gate and so to the sidewalk. I felt rather lucky to escape. But Soper was relentless in his pursuit. He followed Mary to her home and tried to approach her again. This time, he brought an assistant, Dr. Bert Raymond Hubler, for support. Again, Mary was enraged and made it clear that they were unwelcome. She cursed at them as they made a quick retreat. Soper, now realizing that it was going to take more persuasiveness than he was able to offer, handed his research and theories over to Herman Biggs at the New York City Health Department. Biggs agreed with Soper's theories and sent Dr. S. Josephine Baker to talk to Mary. After Soper's clumsy attempts to obtain blood and stool samples from her, Mary was now extremely suspicious of doctors and health officials. She refused to listen to Baker and sent her away. Baker returned a short time later, this time with five police officers and an ambulance. When they arrived at the house, Mary met them at the door with a long kitchen fork in her hand, likely the same one she had chased away Soper with, and lunged at Dr. Baker with it. As Baker stepped back, colliding with police officers behind her and knocking them down the steps, Mary slammed the door shut and made a run for it. By the time they got the door open and followed in pursuit, Mary had disappeared. Baker and the policemen searched the house but found nothing. Eventually, footprints were discovered leading from the house to a chair placed next to a fence. Mary had apparently escaped into a neighbor's yard, or so they thought at first. They searched both properties for the next five hours until, finally, they found what Dr. Baker later described as a tiny scrap of blue calico caught in the door of the areaway closet under the high outside stairway leading to the front door. Mary was dragged from the closet, fighting and swearing, and even though Dr. Baker spoke to her calmly about the specimens that she needed, Mary refused to listen. Dr. Baker wrote, by that time she was convinced that the law was wantonly persecuting her when she had done nothing wrong. She knew she had never had typhoid fever. She was maniacal in her integrity. There was nothing I could do but take her with us. 
The policeman lifted her into the ambulance and I literally sat on her all the way to the hospital. It was like being in a cage with an angry lion. Mary was taken to Willard Parker Hospital and there the specimens were finally taken. Laboratory results showed that Mary indeed had typhoid bacilli in her stool. She was a carrier of typhoid fever. As the first healthy typhoid carrier in New York City, Mary was made an example of by public health officials and was punished for her resistance to their tests. She was promptly detained and was quarantined on North Brother Island located in the East River near the Bronx, which housed hundreds of individuals infected with highly contagious tuberculosis and other conditions. The otherwise healthy Mary Mallon was confined in a cottage on the island, making newspaper headlines and creating her infamous nickname of Typhoid Mary. Mary had been taken by force and was being held against her will without a trial. She had not broken any laws, but because of the fact that she was a lowly Irish immigrant with no money or political clout, and also because she was infected with an illness that people dreaded at the time, she found few to rally to her cause. Mary believed that she was being unfairly persecuted. She could not understand how she could have spread disease and caused a death when she herself seemed healthy. She wrote, I never had typhoid in my life and have always been healthy. Why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion? Public officials felt that they had every right to lock up Mary indefinitely, basing their power on sections 1169 and 1170 of the Greater New York Charter which read, the Board of Health shall use all reasonable means for ascertaining the existence and cause of disease or peril to life or health and for averting the same throughout the city. Said board may remove or cause to be removed to a proper place to be it designated any person sick with any contagious, pestilential, or infectious disease shall have excluding charge and control of the hospitals for the treatment of such cases. The charter was written before anyone knew that healthy carriers, people who seemed healthy but carried a contagious form of the disease that could infect others, could even exist. But the health officials of the early 1900s believed that healthy carriers were even more dangerous than those that were sick with a disease because there was no way to visibly identify a healthy carrier so that they could be avoided or quarantined. For this reason, they had no issues with locking Mary away for as long as they deemed necessary. Mary was initially confined for two years on North Brother Island, during which time she wrote letters and filed a legal suit pleading for her freedom and release from the island. During the time of her confinement, health officials had taken and analyzed her stool samples about once a week. The samples mostly came back positive with typhoid, but not always. For nearly a year, Mary also sent samples to a private lab which tested all of her samples negative for typhoid. Feeling healthy and with her own lab results at hand, Mary believed that she was being unfairly held. But in truth, Mary did not understand much about typhoid fever, and unfortunately no one tried to explain it to her. Not all people have a strong bout of typhoid fever. Some people have such a weak case that they only experience flu-like symptoms. Because of this, Mary could have had typhoid fever without knowing it. Though it was commonly known at the time that typhoid could be spread by water or food products, people who are infected by the typhoid bacillus could also pass on the disease by not washing their hands after using the bathroom. 
For this reason, infected cooks like Mary or food handlers had the most likelihood of spreading the disease. In 1909, Mary argued to the Supreme Court that she was never sick and was never given due process before her confinement. The court ruled against Mary, setting the precedent for the courts to rule in favor of public health officials when individual liberties were at stake. Mary was remanded to the custody of the Board of Health of the City of New York and went back to her isolated cottage on North Brother Island with little hope of ever being released. In 1910, however, the new health commissioner of New York decided to release Mary as long as she agreed to regularly report to the health department and to promise that she would never work as a cook again. Anxious to regain her freedom, Mary accepted the conditions. On February 19th, she was let free. Mary vanished into obscurity after her release, but not for long. In January 1915, the Sloan Maternity Hospital in Manhattan suffered a typhoid fever outbreak in which two people died and 23 others became sick. During the investigation, evidence pointed to a recently hired cook, Mrs. Brown, who was actually Mary Mallon using a false name. Some believe that Mary never had any intention of following the conditions of her release, but most likely she found that not working as a cook forced her into domestic positions that did not pay as well. Feeling healthy, Mary still did not believe that she could spread typhoid. Mary first worked as a laundress and at a few other jobs, but for some reason that has never been documented. Mary eventually went back to working as a cook. If the public had shown Mary any sympathy during her first period of quarantine because she was an unknowing typhoid carrier, it disappeared after she was locked up again. This time, Typhoid Mary knew of her carrier status, even if she didn't believe it, and so she willingly and knowingly caused suffering and death to her victims. The fact that she'd been using a false name made her look even more guilty. On March 27, 1915, Mary was sent back to her cottage on North Brother Island and she remained there, imprisoned on the island for the next 23 years. The exact life that she led on the island is unclear, but it is known that she helped around the island's Riverside Hospital, earning the title of nurse in 1922. In 1925, she began helping in the hospital's lab. In December 1932, she suffered a stroke that left her paralyzed. She was then transferred from her cottage to a bed in the hospital's children's ward, where she stayed until her death six years later, on November 11, 1938. In the years that followed her death, the term Typhoid Mary stopped referring to Mary Mallon and became a term for anyone who had a contagious illness. People who change jobs frequently are also sometimes jokingly referred to as Typhoid Mary. Mary Mallon changed jobs frequently. Some believed that it was because she knew she was guilty, but it was likely because domestic jobs at the time usually didn't last long. But how did Mary become such a legend? Yes, she was the first healthy carrier to be found, but she was not the only one discovered at the time. An estimated 3,000 to 4,500 cases of typhoid fever were reported in New York City alone, and it was estimated that about 3% of those who had typhoid fever became carriers creating more than 90 new carriers a year. Mary was also not the most deadly. 
there were 47 cases of typhoid connected to Mary, while Tony Labella, another healthy carrier, caused 122 people to become sick, with five deaths. Labella was only isolated for two weeks and then was released. Mary was also not the only healthy carrier who broke the health officials' rules after being told of her contagious status. Alphonse Cotless, a restaurant and bakery owner, was told not to prepare food for other people. When health officials found him back at work, they agreed to let him go free when he promised to conduct his business over the phone. So why was Mary singled out? Why was she the only carrier isolated for life? These questions are impossible to answer. Some historians believe that it was prejudice that contributed to her extreme treatment by health officials. She was Irish. She was a woman, uneducated, a domestic servant, had no family and was basically a nobody. She didn't have the money or the position to fight back, and when she did, she was dismissed by the courts for all of the same reasons. Despite Mary's temperament and her violation of the conditions of her release, one has to wonder if the crime really deserved the punishment she was given. The question remains unanswered today, which is perhaps the reason why her spirit is still said to linger at the abandoned hospital where she spent her final days. North Brother Island is a place of ghosts. It lies on 13 acres just southwest of Hunts Point in the East River. It is a remnant of a long-forgotten era in New York history. The island has been abandoned since 1963 when the city closed down Riverside Hospital, which had opened in 1886, to treat and isolate victims of contagious diseases. It gained its notoriety during the tenure of Mary Mallon and remains a mysterious place today, off-limits to the public because it is the nesting place of a species of rare black-crowned herons. It is without question a spooky place, and some say a haunted one. Time seems to have bypassed North Brother Island's gaslight-lined streets, brownstone hospital buildings, crumbling doctors' houses, and sandy beaches littered with cookware and heavy glass tonic bottles. Tragedy first bloodied the island's history in June 1905, when the General Slocum disaster took the lives of 1,141 people, most of them German immigrants from the Lower East Side. They were on their way to a Sunday picnic on Long Island when the overcrowded steamer was accidentally set ablaze. The ship ran aground on North Brother Island and doctors and patients from the hospital ran to try and save the hundreds of passengers who had jumped from the burning ship. For hours after the tragedy, bodies continued to wash up on the island's shore and the beaches were strewn with victims. For decades after, island residents spoke of seeing the ghosts of these victims as they wandered the grounds, weeping for their lives and those of loved ones lost in the disaster. Perhaps these spirits do not walk alone. Riverside Hospital was closed as a quarantine hospital in 1942. It was abandoned for a short time before briefly being used as a housing for World War II veterans who were studying at New York colleges. It was serviced by two ferries that regularly stopped at the Western Slip, but this proved inefficient and expensive, and when cheaper housing was found for these men, the island was abandoned again. In 1952, it opened again, this time as an experimental juvenile drug treatment facility that was offered as an alternative to going to jail. 
the tuberculosis pavilion of the hospital, which was built in 1942 and never actually used to house tuberculosis patients, became a dormitory and then a main residence and treatment building for the program. The doors to many of the rooms were retrofitted into seclusion rooms with sheet metal reinforcement and heavy deadbolts that could be used for withdrawal management. The experimental plan would take a patient newly arrived and addicted to heroin and place him in one of the rooms with no conveniences except for a bare mattress and a mess bucket. They would be forced to undergo withdrawal in the seclusion room without any kind of medicine. After several days, when withdrawal was complete, the patient would be introduced into the general population. It was believed that this harsh return to reality, followed up by a stay of no less than 90 days on the island and bolstered by athletics and education, would provide the best chance against relapse. All of the buildings on the island were renovated. The services building became the school, the nurses' residence became the girls' dormitory, and the tuberculosis pavilion became the admissions hospital and boys' residence. The building next to the tuberculosis pavilion, originally the hospital's children's ward where Mary Mallon spent her final days, was turned into a library and annexed to the school. The grand experiment was a failure. Recidivism rates were extremely high, and even at the isolated island hospital, patients still found means of obtaining and using drugs. There are accounts of boyfriends making the trip to the island in order to visit in the middle of the night, accounts of orderlies getting paid in cigarettes to smuggle heroin on the ferries, and accounts of physical and sexual abuse on and by patients. The hospital was shuttered, and the island was abandoned in 1963 for the final time. The lost souls of this era certainly left an indelible mark on the island, but the most famous troubled spirit that may linger is that of Typhoid Mary herself. Mary was first quarantined on the island in 1907 after causing a number of outbreaks of typhoid fever. She was set free in 1910 but returned to the island five years later after an investigation into an outbreak of typhoid at a Manhattan hospital revealed that she was once again working as a cook under an assumed name. She was sent back to her cottage on the island, this time for good. Mary never understood that she was a carrier of a possibly deadly disease. Instead, she felt she was a victim of persecution at the hands of officials who could neither prove that she was the source of these outbreaks nor explain to her why she felt so healthy and why she seemed free of any type of typical symptoms of typhoid. In 1938, she died on the island due to complications from a stroke she had suffered six years earlier. Mary's cottage was demolished after her death. Officials felt that it was unsafe for habitation, but she spent much of her time working and later dying at Riverside Hospital, where her ghost is still believed to walk. Over the years, visitors to the island, those who braved the river and the warnings against trespassers, have reported the spirit of a woman who wanders the corridors of the crumbling old hospital. She has been seen a number of times by a wide variety of people, including staff members at the hospital during the era when the drug treatment program was in place. One account details an orderly who followed the woman down a corridor only to see her walk into one of the rooms. Thinking that one of the inmates had gotten out of her room, the orderly hurried down the hall and entered the exam room, 
only to find there was no one there. Was this woman one of the many tragic spirits of North Brother Island, or could it have been the ghost of Mary Mallon, unable to rest after nearly three decades of punishment that she never felt she deserved? No one will likely ever know for sure. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron for as little as $1 per month and get exclusive patron-only content for as little as $5 per month. Learn more by clicking the link in the show notes or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. Another way to show your support is to share a link directly to this episode on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and other social media, and ask your friends and family to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review. If you subscribe and leave a review, I'll be sure to give you a shout-out in a future episode. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Pop was written by Melda. The Lingering Ghost of Typhoid Mary was written by Troy Taylor. And The Acid Bath Murderer of England was written by Stephen Casale. Music in this episode is by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at facebook.com slash shadows symphony. And if you like news, politics, and laughs, be sure to check out my other podcast at dailydoseofweirdnews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorant Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362.